if you are the kind of person that when you hear someone say Black Lives Matter, if your immediate response is, well, all lives matter, maybe you should take a step back and consider why is it you have such a hard time accepting that Black Lives Matter? Because mm-hmm. Black Lives are part of all lives, right? So it, it, there shouldn't be an issue with just stating something that you are claiming to agree with. And so if the phrase Black Lives Matter gets your back up a little bit, maybe question that. Why? Why does it get your back up? What's up, guys? It's your boy, Jordan. As always with me is Jared. Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt. Today, we're going to be talking about something that happens to be very topical. Specifically, we're going to be talking about systemic racism in America, focusing in on systemic racism in policing. And it's kind of ironic because this is a topic that uh, we've been kind of holding on to in our back pockets because we knew that no matter when we did it, it would always be relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny and not at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 30 years um, from now, <laughs> still relevant. Hopefully not, but probably. So some of you may have heard when I did a debate a couple months back on the Proselytize or Apostatize podcast slash YouTube channel. If you saw that, you'll be hearing some of the same information, but hopefully I'll be able to go a little bit deeper. Before we get into that, though, uh, we want to talk about today's fallacy. Today's fallacy is the straw man fallacy. So, Jared, what's a straw man fallacy? So, a straw man fallacy is basically setting up an argument that is like a... a almost like a shell of your opponent's argument so that you can easily knock it down. So there may be some kernels of truth to it or the the overall structure may be there, but it's so oversimplified and so hollow that it doesn't actually accurately represent your opponent's argument. And then you're able to easily refute that. So you're arguing against something that your opponent actually doesn't support. Right. So an example of a straw man fallacy um, that a lot of atheists have probably run into is if you're talking to someone who believes in God and you mention that you're an atheist and they'd be like, oh, so you're saying there is definitely no God. Well, how do you know? That's a straw man because you probably didn't actually say that. Yeah. And so this is a very common thing and it's not always intentional. Sometimes a person might have straw manned unintentionally maybe they didn't understand maybe they didn't listen hard enough yeah. maybe you were just very poor at explaining your position in which case it probably wouldn't technically be a straw man but the easiest way to avoid this is just to be mindful of your opponent's position and really try to understand where they're coming from even if you disagree with it which is something you should be doing all the time anyway yeah and also if you're going to be sitting down with interlocutor and you want to have a conversation, it's important to define your terms, Mm -hmm. right? And that's something that we're going to do in this episode today. Segue. Right. (laughs) So if you live in America, or even if you don't, and you are not currently located under a rock, you're probably aware of a significant amount of racial tension that's going on in the country. It's largely prompted by... Uh, unlawful, well, perceived unlawful and unjust slangs of black people, particularly black men, um, by the police. And it's sparked a larger conversation about uh, whether policing in America is racist to some extent. 
And it, like we said before, it almost doesn't matter when you're listening to this podcast, because if you're listening to it any time in the last, you know, in the next 10 years, at least, it's probably going to be accurate. Yeah. And when, when we say systemic racism, we're really talking about like an institutionalized racism. We're not talking about racist individuals or, you know, prejudice amongst people. We're talking about the racism being built into the system itself as a whole. And hopefully the information and data we share will support that, you know, as we go through this podcast. Right. That's important to keep in mind as we go forward. We're not saying that every cop is racist. In fact, if systemic racism exists, it doesn't require any racist cops, though they can certainly be there and it would make it worse. But if the system is set up in such a way to to disadvantage minorities, particularly black people in America, then the system can accurately be called racist, even if the people executing the decisions themselves are not racist. So today, uh, if you've listened to this podcast in the past, uh, you may have noticed a trend in that we rarely make claims ourselves. Yeah. Why would you make a claim? Then you have to support it. I mean, exactly. And that's, that's so, it takes so much work. And then, you know, you have to like provide evidence and stuff. So because this is a podcast on skepticism, uh, we tend to take the skeptical position about claims that come out and see if they're true or false. But today we're going to be doing something different. Today, Jared and I are actually going to be making a claim. We are going to be claiming that there is, in fact, systemic racism in America. Particularly in the criminal justice system. Right. Um, So as soon as we tell you that, dear listener, you should be starting from a position of doubt. You should be doubting our claim and withholding judgment and not believing us unless and until we provide sufficient evidence. And if we don't, at the end of this, you can let us know. <laughs> well, then you don't believe us then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, I think even though we do, we, the burden of proof is on us, uh, probably the easiest way to kind of walk through the evidence is to address the various objections that tend to get thrown at this one because it touches sure. on most of the major points. Yeah. Uh, so, Jared, what's, what's an objection you hear to this? Well, black people just commit more crimes. I mean, so obviously they're going to be arrested more. You know, they're going to be, they're going to, that's why they're in prison. So they commit more crimes. But do they though? So uh, people who throw out this objection, they may even have some statistics behind it. Because if you look at, for instance, in the, for for drug related crimes, black people constitute about half of all people incarcerated for drug-related crimes. And so someone could definitely look at that and say, see, look, they're committing all of these crimes. You know, of course they're getting targeted by police because they commit more crime. And to a certain extent, it may be true if you just looked at, like, an absolute number. But as is often the case, something that could possibly be true can still be used to promote a false conclusion. Right. You know? For for example, we need to make sure we clarify that committing crimes is not the same as being arrested for committing crimes. Right. So, for example, if there was, in fact, systemic racism, it may it may manifest in that white people are not as likely to be arrested for a crime that they commit. And if they're arrested, they may not be as likely to be convicted. And so the statistics would show black people committing more crimes, but that may not reflect reality. 
and even if it did, it still may not mean that there isn't systemic racism. For example, black people tend to be more impoverished in America than white people on average, and poverty is positively correlated with crime. But just because they commit more may not mean they commit proportionally as much. So like, say that they committed, I don't know, a quarter of all crimes, but they were a half of all convictions. That's still, even though they commit more than anyone else, that's still, that, and I'm not saying they do, but Correct. if they did, that would still show systemic racism. Right. Because if you have 25% of the people committing crimes representing 50% of your incarcerations or your convictions, then that's not a, a fair and equitable way of, you know, 25% right. of white people committing crimes, but they only represent 10% of your convictions. You know, yeah. It's and this, there's a couple of pieces of evidence we can show that this is actually the case. Um, first of all, the, the idea that our data might be biased isn't uh, a new idea. Uh, you can look at administrative records mask racially p- biased policing in the journal American Political Science Association that was published by a couple of fellows from Har- uh, Princeton. And they were looking at the state of the data we have. So one of the issues with this whole subject is all of the data we have is self-reported by the police and not there's no like requirement and we have instead of just like one policing force in america we have you know several thousand little police departments all of which do whatever they want with no centralized dictates outside the state president trump's recent executive order was targeted at alleviating that by mandating some centralized reporting but if that bears any fruit it won't show itself for years yet so as it stands now we don't and so what what they talked about in this paper were some sources of systemic bias that would mask uh the racial bias inherent in the system for example take california where police have to record the 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 demographic information of everyone they stop so if they stop you get everything that data which we may go into later does actually show systemic racism but the amount to which it shows it probably doesn't reflect the actual amount there is there because we're missing one essential piece. All of the people the police did not choose to stop. Correct. So by the time we get the statistic, the policeman has already chosen to stop this person for whatever reason. And so if there was any sort of racism involved in that decision, it wouldn't be captured. You're, you're looking at it through a faulty lens, perhaps. Right. Uh, so say uh, the policeman looked at he stops i don't know 10 black people and 10 white people you know and that's the data you have you may not see that he stopped he saw 10 black people and stopped every single one but saw 100 white people and only stopped 10 of them but you right. wouldn't get that data from the information that we have so you're missing a vital layer and that's just one problem one way in which systemic racism racism could kind of be baked into the data that we have but we don't have to guess, fortunately, because we can actually detect some systemic racism. So the, the bias we have would lead us to conclude that if the data we have, if it is a bias, it's probably biased in a racist way, right? So if we detect any systemic racism in our data, we can be reasonably confident that the actual fact is more than that. It, the, da- the data we have is like a minimum value, right? And so the actual racism would be more, but not less. Could be more, but definitely isn't less, right? So 
we can look at one class of crime, drug crime, because this this is a, a nice class to look at because researchers in the medical field collect data independently of the criminal justice system in order to just assess the problem with drug use in America and how best to treat it and those sort of things. So we have a whole second stream of information about this not related in any way to someone getting arrested. If there is no systemic racism, what we would expect is that since black people take up about half of the drug convictions, that they would be constitute about half of the drug users and drug dealers, right? That makes sense. Right. Unfortunately, that is not at all (laughs) (laughs) what we see. I've been saying about half. You can find the exact numbers that I'm using. They're from 2011, but they haven't changed significantly since then. The prisoners in 2011 released by the U.S. Department of Justice. And percent of of the prison population by drug convictions, about 60% of the population is white, 50% is black, and 20% Hispanic. Of course, that's the contrast with the general population of America. 28% of America is white, 13% is black, so clearly disproportionate. However, if you look at the 2018 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, or you can pick any other year, they do this survey every year, but I looked at a few different years and the data was about the same through all of them. It turns out that if there's one thing that all of the races can agree on, it's that drugs are awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Drugs Uh, are bad, okay? (laughs) Because they all do drugs. doesn't matter what color you are. So they found that drug use as a percentage of the population was about equivalent, whether you were white or black. They, They measured it a couple different ways. The one I'm looking at are the subset of people that they talked to that had used drugs within the last month. So they, they talked to them in like June and they asked, they had like within a year at, they had like ever in your life within a year, within six months and like less months. So like very recently did you use drugs? So that would get your more habitual users as opposed to a guy who like tried Coke at a party once, you know? Mm-hmm. And about 13, 13.1% of black people surveyed had used any kind of illicit drug and about 12 percent of white people so very close in percentage yeah, very with, similar. i mean there's probably a margin of error there too so yeah the kind of drug that they used was different so black people were more likely to use pot or crack whereas white people were more likely to use cocaine and and meth they love some meth white people like some crystal yeah. meth Actually, interestingly, if you exclude pot, if you just say marijuana is not, it's legal in some places and it's not like that big a deal, let's let's put pot aside, then white people are actually more likely to use other kinds of drugs. So white people are more likely to use harder drugs than black people. Like heroin? Heroin. I have that one. Opioids, yeah. Hero, uh, 1.4% of those surveyed used heroin if they were white, 1.1% if they were black. The margins there are pretty small, so I wouldn't put too much yeah. stock in the the tiny differences. The point is the drug use across the board is about equivalent. But remember, even though the people use drugs at about the same rate, they are arrested for drugs at an extremely different rate. Extremely different. So that by itself would show at least some kind of bias. Whether it's a bias in like where the police are looking. So if the police are sent to black neighborhoods to find black, you know, to find drug crime, they're going to find black people doing drugs, you know? Uh, wait a second. Wait a second. 
if you go looking for crime in a specific area, you're going to find crime there. Right. And you won't find it where you're not looking. <laughs> that doesn't seem very fair. For example, <laughs> in my neighborhood, I live in a suburban, mostly white neighborhood. And there is a house that everybody in the neighborhood knows they run drugs out of. Like everybody knows. <laughs> Kids stay away from there. People like, like we know that that's a drug house. But the cops, like, it, like we'd known this for years, and we told the cops about it. It took, like, three years to get there and take care of this drug house. Uh, <laughs> but my point is, like, there was no cop, like, on the corner looking for drug deals in suburban white America, you know, yeah. as opposed to what it would look like in the projects. Well, well, similarly to speaking of, you know, drugs and different types of drugs, like, there, there's even harsher penalties for drugs that black people use more than white people, such as crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. Crack cocaine carries with it, even till today, even after the 2010, um, I forget what the thing that Obama passed, um, the Fair Sentencing Act. Even with that, crack cocaine still carries a, a more harsher sentence. And because black people use crack cocaine more than white people use powder cocaine, they are penalized more for it. So that's an example of systemic racism. So we made the claim that black people, that, that if we saw systemic racism, black people would be con- arrested and convicted for a specific crime disproportion, a disproportionate amount compared to white people, and that is what we see. So yeah. there's one in the column for systemic racism. Cha-ching. Another way there could be systemic racism after you get past the police officer putting you in handcuffs um, you go before a judge and a jury. If there were systemic racism and it extended to that, we would expect to see that two individuals with similar records and similar crimes would receive similar sentences and be convicted a similar amount. Yeah. And I think it's important to highlight what we're doing here is we're asking a question. All right, if systemic racism is true, what would we expect to see within the population? And then we go and look to see if our hypothesis is true. It's very similar to how science works. And like, you know, you don't just say, oh, look, here or here, this means it's true. Like you actually have to make a, a hypothesis and then say, let's go find out if that holds water. Not just a hypothesis, but a null hypothesis as well. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Like, here's what we would expect to see if I'm right. And if I'm wrong and this is not caused by what I think, what would it look like? That's the null hypothesis. Yep. And you always prefer the null hypothesis to your own, all else being equal. There's some interesting programs being put in place to try to measure this potential bias. For instance, lawyers in California now have to give an initial recommendation for sentencing without being aware of the person's race. They don't know their name or their race. All they have are the facts of the case, and they have to make a recommendation. Now, later they can adjust that recommendation based on the full facts of the case if they wish. Or if they um, find out the person's white, then they can say, well... Obviously, then they can just dismiss it. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but there's no data from that um, yet. But it, it is a, a thing being looked at. However, even though we don't have a systemic program like that, there are some suggestions. You can see this in a paper by the in the... U- that was published by the University of Michigan Law, Racial Disparity in Federal Criminal Sentences by Rahavi and Starr. This was published in 2014, so a little older, uh, but still relevant. And so what they found were that if two people had a record, 
they had both committed crimes, that the sentencing was pretty close to on par, whether they were white or black. So, hey, that's good, right? Unfortunately, what they found was overall, there were some disparities. Black individuals received a 13% harsher uh, sentence than white people for the same charge. They were 1.75 times as more likely to face a charge with a mandatory minimum sentence. So white people were more likely to have their serious charges dropped or reduced. Hmm. So even though they were getting convicted at about the same rate, if they had the record, the charge they were getting convicted of was not the same. They were black people were 15% more likely to have a felony charge reduced to, or sorry, white people were 15 more percent. 15% more likely to have a felony charge reduced to a misdemeanor. Um, And they were 75% more likely to have crimes carrying no incarceration at all. This was, this held true regardless of how well off or poor they were. So like obviously being rich is an advantage. So a black rich person did better than a poor black person. You can afford better lawyers and right. But if a rich black person and a rich white person were accused of a crime, you'd rather be the rich white person for the purposes of sentencing. Something interesting they found, though, if you had a white person with a criminal record and a black person with a criminal record that were about the same, a lot of these differences disappeared. But if you had a white person with no record and a black person with no record, there were extremely different results for the two people, which shows that the lawyers and the judges and perhaps even the juries were using the color of their skin as a substitute for a criminal record. So I would like to, at this point, to me, the objection seems to be that that is not an example of systemic racism, but an example of racist people within the system imposing those penalties, right? So there must have been a racist judge or a racist jury or a racist lawyer in those cases. And I think while that may seem like logical, we also have to understand that there is implicit bias built into our system you know, somebody can be not be racist, but be acting on implicit biases that they have that they're not even aware of based on the color of somebody's skin. Well, that's true. Like everyone ha- is a we're tribalistic beings by nature. You can t- take some tests online that they've devised to measure your implicit bias, how quickly you associate good turns with white faces and bad turns with with black faces and that sort of thing. Um, And the results may surprise you, especially if you consider yourself egalitarian and woke. (laughs) But I think the more important thing is that this isn't an isolated phenomenon. It's not like in one county they had this issue or, you know, it, it happens sometimes, but not everywhere. This is something that happens all across the country and has been happening for decades. So if it is, oh, it's just a racist judge, that means that like all of our judges are racist. Which... And if all of our judges are racist in the system, then that means the system's racist. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. If, if it is the case that it would have to be a huge percentage of our judges, of our lawyers, and our juries, which are selected to in part by the lawyers, uh, would have to be racist. And I don't see how you could possibly get to that situation without systemic racism somewhere. You know? right. Like, I don't know how you could preferentially pick all of the racists you know? <laughs> <laughs> without having some kind of systemic racism being involved. So yeah. either way, 
uh, their systemic racism of some flavor. And it, it isn't necessarily clear what is causing it. it. It's not always easy to draw a bright line link from A to B. Yeah, what you're doing is you're just looking at the data at the end saying, look, this is right. in line with what we expected to find. We've talked about what happens after a person gets arrested, and we've mentioned the stopping data. California actually is a really good source for a lot of this data because they're a bit more liberal than most states, and so mm-hmm. they are taking more proactive steps to try to address this kind of problem. In California, they have a act, it's RIPA, which is stands for something. Kelly RIPA. Racial and Identity Profiling Act. The RIPA Act. No, the RIPA, because RIPA Act would be the Racial and Identity Profiling Act Act. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. so in California, like I mentioned earlier, they have to stop, or any time a policeman stops a person, they have to say why they stopped them, but also what race they were, what age they were, et cetera, et cetera, to collect a whole bunch of data. And they also have to talk about what happened during the stop. You know, even if they don't arrest anybody, even if they don't charge anyone, they're like, if they put someone in handcuffs, they have to report that. You know, it's like, basically, it's it's like a survey of, did you do X or did Y happen? Yes or no. Yeah. And this data is alarming, to say the least. So all this data is available from California. And what I did was I downloaded it or transcribed it from the ever really nice little widget. You can kind of see offhand and i took all of the white people who had a particular outcome and then all the black people who had a particular outcome and then compared your relative risk so like you got stopped by a policeman what's your risk of x happening if you're white versus if you're black so just running down the line and this was for the whole state if you were black every single negative outcome you were more likely to have so there was no negative outcome that was more likely for a white person here are some examples. You were two and a, two point one times more likely to be handcuffed if you were black. You were two point two times as likely to be detained. Three point three times as likely to have your property searched. You were four times more likely to be told to get out of your vehicle. You were three times as likely to be physically pulled from your vehicle. You were three times as likely to have a gun pointed at you. Two t- three times as likely, or sorry, two times as likely to be maced. Two and a half times as likely to be tased. Two and a half times as likely to have, they, it said impact projectile discharged, which they didn't clarify, but I assume means like a beanbag. Like less than lethal. Round or, or, yeah, yeah, less than lethal. That's what I'm assuming that means. Three times as likely to be bit by a canine, 1.7 times as likely to be hit by a baton. Like, if you can name a bad thing that could happen from the cops talking to you, it, if you're black, you're more likely to have it. Hmm. And, and also the percentage of stops. Uh, if you were white, White people take up 37% of the population. They make up 33% of the stops. Black people are 6% of the population in California, made up 15% of the stops. So they were more likely to stop a black person, and when they stop them, they're more likely to pull them out of the car, throw them on the ground, put them in handcuffs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Which, and this is in California. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and that's averaging the entire state, which remember, because we have like a thousand different police departments, all of which doing their own thing, there's a lot of variety. If you focus in on just Los Angeles or like Oakland which, County, like which has yeah. a really bad reputation for this. If <laughs> I'll just run through a couple, 
four times as likely to be handcuffed, 13 times as likely to be removed from the vehicle, eight times as likely to be be thrown from the vehicle, six times as likely to be, like, every single one was, like, doubled or tripled. It was bad. That's insane. Um, And again, this is not saying, like, oh, there are more black people being stopped. This is, like, for a specific black person or a specific white person, what's your relative risk? So it doesn't matter how many are stopped. It's relative risk. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting uh, when, you know, we had talked about the the pulling overs of by police officers was what happens when it's daytime and the police officer can see the driver and what happens when it's nighttime and they can't see the driver. Yeah. That's a really interesting one too, because uh, let me actually find that data. Cause that's, that's, that's a really, really good study actually. If you get excited about peer reviewed studies. I mean, I know I do like this is actually one of the best studies I've ever seen. In May 2020, so very recently, there was a study of traffic stops nationwide uh, published by Pearson, Overgore, et al. in the Journal of Natural Human Behavior. So they looked at 95 million traffic stops in most, like all across the country. They didn't hit every single state, but it's from the West Coast to the East Coast, Midwest. They got a good selection of everyone. And they found, like you said, something very interesting. Black and Hispanic drivers were more likely to be pulled over, but only during the day. So once it was nighttime, and you couldn't tell who was in the car, white people got pulled over just as much. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's almost like there's some racism involved. <laughs> Another interesting thing, they found that black and Hispanic drivers were twice as likely to have their car searched, but that white drivers were more likely to have contraband when searched. So it's not like, oh, they were searching black people, but they found a bunch of stuff every time. So like the black people were just like, they should have been searched because they were doing something wrong. No, like there were way more false negatives when you were searching all the black people. But when you search Uh, the white people, they had all the, you know, because white people feel comfortable. I can keep my crack pipe right in my my dashboard. Like (laughs) I wouldn't put too much stock on the fact that they were more likely simply because like, I think the story this is telling is not so much that white people were likely to have illegal stuff, but that the black that the officers were way more comfortable in searching a black person's car, right. and were more likely to say "I need to search this car" than they were to say "I need to search a white person's car." Mm-hmm. Probably the things that were leading them to search the white person's car were actually legitimate because they were finding more stuff. Yeah. That's the, the conclusion I would draw from it. So, but that's my interpretation of the data. The data itself, take on its own terms, just clearly shows that uh, being black or Hispanic, basically not being white, means that the cops are more likely to target you. Yeah. So we've seen examples of like what happens when after you get arrested, what happens when you get pulled over, like systemic racism in both of those. What about, are there any policies or laws that we can point to that show systemic racism actually in practice, like targeting black people? Because, I mean, I think that would really, I mean, I know the answer, obviously. but So uh, since the Civil Rights Act, which solved all racist problems, and we don't have any issue with race anymore in America since the 70s, you can't have a policy that is explicitly racist or explicitly targets anyone so you can't have a policy that's like you know if you're black we're going to pull you over twice as much like that can't be a a policy but there are certainly policies that have turned out to be racist in in practice one famous example is stop and frisk which 
was a big thing in New York. New York is not the only place that's done it, but the NYPD is... Uh, they enforced the crap out of it. Yeah, and they were also subject to a Supreme Court decision uh, about it. So, or not a Supreme Court, sorry, it was a district court. So what stop and frisk is for anyone who is white and therefore isn't familiar with it, basically they could stop and frisk people that they deem to be suspicious without having to say they didn't like, need probable cause like that so yeah it, it kind of changed so it's not like oh you jaywalked or you committed a crime you spat now, on the ground <laughs> yeah now i'm going to and after stopping you for that i'm going to go do it was more like that person is acting in a very strange way or you know they're they're moving furtively was something that they used a lot as their as their justification i'm going to stop and frisk him to proactively stop crime now just taking it on its own leaving race out of it constitutional concerns aside i can see where someone might be in favor of this oh the person why should we wait for them to commit a crime right like this person's acting weird we should let the police who are experts and you know have that sixth sense use their discretion to try to catch criminals before they do the bad things, Mm -hmm. right? Unfortunately, the sixth sense that the NYPD had was called racism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think in in 2017 alone, um, 90% of the people that they stopped were either African-American or Latino. Yeah, it it, it was bad. For example, young black men and Latino men. Ages 14 to 24. Right. They account for 5% of the population of the city, yet they accounted for 38% of the stops, right? But if it were the case, it's like, oh, well, again, but those are the guys committing crimes, right? So shouldn't you stop them a lot? It's kind of like the proof is in the pudding. If we found stuff, then it's fine. But uh, if there's one thing that stop and frisk did more than racism, it was failing. Like it didn't actually turn up anything. Right. Uh, they were more likely to be frisked, but they were less likely to be found with a weapon, which is the whole freaking point of yeah. of, of the stop. Well, the other thing it should be pointed out, too, is like stop and frisk was enforced in inner city urban areas, which are more historically black or Latino. And you didn't see people out in the suburbs doing stop and frisk, you know, walking down right. the street when you're walking your dog. Hey, he's walking his dog funny. We should stop and frisk him. Like, yeah. So the police were given discretion on when to frisk people, and they exercised that discretion almost exclusively to discriminate against black people or or black and Latino minorities. It was so bad that the practice was deemed unconstitutional in the case Floyd versus City of New York, but it still exists today in other departments. It was struck down in New York, but it wasn't struck down for all time everywhere. So it's it's still a thing that's going on. And I think what that kind of leads to is uh, particular policing practices that might inadvertently target minority neighborhoods. So take, for example, the common police strategy of hotspot policing. So, and this is where I should probably give the disclaimer that I'm not a cop or a criminal justice major in any way qualified. So again, find the actual experts that we're quoting. But what hotspot policing is, is where they look at the data and they say, well, there's a lot of crime being committed here. It's a hot spot. So we're going to put the police in this hot spot, you know, patrolling that area. Which sounds reasonable, right? You go where the crime is. Yeah. But remember, 
that the data we have is biased to begin with. It already has a racist bias baked into it. So if you send all your police to this one area, you'll find crime in that area because that's where you're looking. And then guess and, what? Your next report is going to say, hey, there's crime in this area. Let's go there and police it. Right. And it's kind of like a self-reinforcing cycle where yeah. it's kind of like that old joke where the drunk guy loses his keys hmm. and he's looking under the streetlight and his friend comes over to help him look. And then they don't find anything a little while later. He's like, well, where'd you lose your keys? Oh, I lost them over there in the dark. Why are you looking here? Well, this is where the light is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, yeah, if you're in the black neighborhoods or the Latina neighborhoods because your hotspot policing has told you to go there, then you're going to be stopping and frisking and and searching black and Latino people because that's where they are, you know? Uh, uh, I saw a debate on this topic, and the person who was arguing that there was systemic racism was a former police officer. I forget what rank he was. But he was like... They were arguing in New York, in like Manhattan, a nicer area of town. And he said, if I patrolled this area of Manhattan to the extent that the poor neighborhoods in New York are being patrolled right now, within six months, this would be the most crime infested part of New York. Hmm. Not because there's actually more crime, but because we'd be finding it. Right. You know. So one thing, a common thread that keeps coming up here is um, is poverty. And how you know poverty is a crime. Black neighborhoods tend to be more impoverished. And I think this is a different topic, but it's something that I'd like to highlight. How did we get to this place to begin with, where black neighborhoods tend to be more impoverished? And I, th- I would direct people to look back to the practice of redlining, which started in the 1934 uh, National Housing Act, uh, where they actually went through and started red, like drawing red lines around black neighborhoods. And then those neighborhoods weren't able to get loans to buy houses because they said that there was no property value and all this stuff. But they were specifically, it was a very specific racist thing that was being done. And as a result, white people were able to get more loans. They were able to get houses, build more equity, and then it just stacked on from there. And that's kind of how we got to this place now. So, Well, that's one of the things. I mean, the, the ways in which the American system has been rigged against people of color is many and varied and yeah. it goes we have a 400 year history of subjugating people of color a really good podcast if you want to hear more about that is uh seeing white it was that which was the name of the podcast series on the scene on radio podcast and they did a really good job of breaking down all the way back from the 17th century when the first slave arrived and tracking that all the way through to the present day and all the ways that the system has been designed in such a way as to keep black people down, basically. Yeah. Um, everything from when they were emancipated, they didn't get their 40 acres and a mule. Yeah. They were promised it, but taken away from them. And they didn't get their land. And that this kind of, before I get into the story, this is something I heard. And I even said myself when I was younger and dumber that, you know, I didn't own any slaves and no one I know was ever a slave. So what do you, what does it matter? Like, how is slavery relevant? It's so long ago. Yeah. But that misses the generational effect of wealth. So the slaves, they start in the late 19th century with nothing because they were given absolutely nothing. And so they have to go into poor neighborhoods because they don't have enough money, right? And so they're working the certain jobs they can get in their area. And then you have the Jim Crow laws, which were put in place to keep them down. 
uh, in other places you had redlining like you talked about. And all of these things prevent black people from building wealth to pass on to their kids, not just literal money, but a safe and stable home, a good school to send your kids to, the ability to have a parent tutor them afterwards, you know, or safety nets. Like if I lost my job right now and I lost everything, my in-laws could take could help take care of me if I needed to because they have a good amount of money that they're they're reasonably well off and but if I were in a black neighborhood and everyone I knew was poor because of this generational bias, there'd be no one there to help me because we're all freaking poor right you know <laughs> I think why it's important to to highlight these things is because you know we're talking specifically about the the criminal justice system. But it's important to remember that this goes much broader than all of that. And all of those things impact the criminal justice system and why we find crime in these areas at a higher rate sometimes. Maybe because it's, we're looking for them and we're doing hotspots or maybe because it's just that's just what's bred out of poverty, you know. Yeah. So you may have noticed so far we haven't really gotten into people being killed by the police. And that's an intentional decision because we hear about that all the time and the whole like uh it, it just gets it gets messy people tend to get very emotionally involved in that but i think taking a step back and looking like here are all of the other ways in which policing is biased it kind of makes it 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 might be easy to dismiss in this one narrow field mm-hmm. there's still evidence that that's biased on its own but you know whatever but it's harder to dismiss the bias when it's in every other part you yeah. know well, I mean, speaking of killings, like, you know, this is anecdotal, but if you look at examples of like uh, George Floyd, right, trying to pass off a $20 bill, it's counterfeit, whatever, uh, ended up with a knee on his neck for nine, almost nine minutes and, and murdered. But then you look at somebody like um, Kyle Rittenauer. Kyle Rittenauer, yeah, <laughs> who literally w- shot people in the street and then walked down with his hands up with a gun, like at a bunch of police officers, or you look at somebody like James. And Egan. he wasn't even detained. Yeah. wasn't even detained. He's like, yeah, just go over there. You look at somebody yeah. like James Egan Holmes, who literally shot up a freaking movie theater and was arrested peacefully. Like the, di- yeah. these are, these are examples and it's anecdotal, but what I think it does is it, it really sheds a light on how differently we treat people based on the color of their skin. Yeah. You know? Not that, we need anecdotal evidence because there's plenty of actual evidence. Right, if yeah. you look, if if you look at a uh, friar, uh, for example, this uh, source is used a lot by people who say that um, there is the All Lives Matter crew because friar, who is happens to be a black man, he wrote the paper in 2016, an empirical analysis of racial differences in police use of force, and he, the red letter conclusion that everyone got was that he found no evidence of deadly force being used differently from white or black people. He is an outlier in that. And he had some, uh, he published other papers talking about why he thinks he's an outlier, what the, the view, the problems he sees in other papers, etc. So it's still unsettled whether or not his uh, results are the correct way to do things. However, if you actually read the paper, he's very explicit that even though he didn't find bias in deadly force, he found all kinds of bias in every other kind of force. And he also found that if you were a compliant person, if the police approached you and you didn't resist and you were nonviolent, noncompliant, you were more likely to be hurt or killed if you were black. Which is important because I've heard the argument so many times. 
Well, if they would just be compliant with the police, they wouldn't get in trouble. Like if they would just not resist arrest, they wouldn't get hurt. Um, which that shows you right there that that's not the case. Another example that, that kind of highlights that deaths due to the use of force, lethal force by law enforcement by Fowler and Calkins, they found that white people, white men specifically more likely to commit suicide by cop where you basically attack the police hoping they'll kill you. You pull out a gun on them or something. And yeah. Yeah. Um, And so when you control for that, if you remove the suicide by cop part, then the disparity grows even further. So like the, the white people who are intentionally trying to get killed by the police, if you take them out of the equation, then the racism shows up again. And so example after example of racism. Right. And if you are white, it, this conversation may make you uncomfortable because it's not something we like to imagine exists, right? We, it's, you know, racism is something that we all know it exists, but it's small and you've got those racist people living in there, whatever, you know, it doesn't happen in my backyard, you know. Uh, but I think the, the truth, the actual reality is that not only is racism itself more widespread than many of us would like to believe, but that the system that under which we live is racist and has been for a long time. And the only way that's ever going to change is if people who are not subject to this kind of discrimination speak up and say something. And start voting for people who are going to change policies. And one thing I think we should do here and something that our current leader wasn't able to do when given an opportunity to do so, um, is denounce racism and white supremacist groups because that should be one of the most easiest things in the world to do. Yeah, unequivocally, obviously, if you're a racist, a white supremacist in any flavor, then you can go fuck yourself. Yeah, fuck you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But also, if you are the kind of person that when you hear someone say Black Lives Matter, if your immediate response is, well, all lives matter, maybe you should take a step back and consider why is it you have such a hard time accepting that black lives matter? Because mm-hmm. black lives are part of all lives, right? So it, it, there shouldn't be an issue with just stating something that you are claiming to agree with. And so if the phrase black lives matter gets your back up a little bit, maybe question that. Why? Why does it get your back up? You yeah. know? Is it because you're not included in that, in that statement? Like... Right. And if that's the case, consider that when a house is on fire we go to the house that's on fire and stop the fire at the house that's on fire. We don't go to the other side of town and spray a different house because all houses matter. All houses right. matter, Jordan. My house matters too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but your house isn't on fire, fucker. There's a particular house in America that is literally on fire. And it would be just super awesome if we would stop treating black people like they're subhuman. That would be yeah. great. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope... That and this is just scratching the surface. Yeah, there are, in fact, entire podcasts dedicated just to this topic. You could, there's just so much more out there. Check the Seeing White podcast for more. You can go to other places. Uh, so if you weren't convinced, I hope at least this has shown that maybe there might be more to it than you thought, and that pro- would prompt you to keep going. It's okay if the information we presented wasn't persuasive on its own. That's fine. I don't know is always an acceptable answer. However, I don't know. Therefore, it's not. It, that's not an acceptable answer. 
Well, that is our episode. We hope you found it useful and engaging and make you think some more about things in the future. If you wouldn't mind, go over to the Facebook post if you're one of the Facebook page if you're one of the people who does the book. Like our our podcast, share it with your friends, comment on it if you don't like it. That seems to be a popular thing to do. Um, <laughs> uh, so, whether you're white, black, Latino, or pink with purple polka dots, remember you've always, always got, got reason, reason to doubt. doubt. All lives matter. This is a true statement. Yeah. One of my favorite memes was, uh, if you don't like Black Lives Matter because you think all lives matter, but you think that Blue Lives Matter is fine, then the word that was bothering you is black. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's funny. It's true.